I thought of the king, haunted by later. I thought of how much he hated Sejanus, and I thought about the prophecy. Sejanus had mocked and humiliated the king. So had many others, but it was Sejanus who had come so close to killing him. The king had seen him directing the assassins in the garden without recognizing the danger. He'd survived that attack by inches. Fear and hatred twined together. Looking at the stones and the delicate feather of a wren, Zykos's cufflink and Sejanus's ring, I saw a pattern. I saw the relationship between all the pieces, hate, fear, revenge, remorse. I saw it as if it were one of the magus's equations, and I could calculate the outcome. Whatever it was that Sejanus knew, learning it would destroy the king. And this is why you pay attention in math class. Welcome back, Lost Ponies. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to help you recover from Return of the Thief. We're not saying the date anymore. We're not saying um, the word. That would be hubris. Sorry. <laughs> Life is tough and the world is a trash fire, so... Excuse our lateness. We remain alive. Every episode. We're living. And that is what can be said. So they get the elephants. They get the elephants. Hell what yeah. What a great scene that what is. What are they going to do with three elephants after the war? Oh, they're going to have a grand old time. Yeah. They're going <laughs> to start a zoo. They're, I mean, you know, it's, uh, let's not think about the conditions of those elephants. <laughs> and, uh, they're going to build an elephant stable. I think or just put them in the, the guard's bathhouse. Laws about the treatment of animals are, are probably not robust, I would I would guess. They'll be pretty valuable animals, though. They'll want to take care of them. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was just reading another book that had war elephants in it. Mm. It was um, Gentleman of the Road by Michael Chabon. Is that how you pronounce his name? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. I live. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a, it's a nice contrast between last chapter and this chapter when, you know, Jen was so impersonal and he was not, he was not himself, mm. shall we say. And then he wakes up and, and he and Atolia are immediately having this kind of banter again yeah. where she, she got him these elephants because she knew it would make him happy. Mm. And he says, my queen, my excellent queen. Is that what he says? That sounds right. Yeah, my queen, said the king, raising himself on his elbows. My excellent queen. And he's he's waking from this dream of what he calls a prophecy, even though he's very specific that this is not coming from Moira, it's not a message from the gods, it's from someone who hates him, and it's he's not going to believe it, and he's not going to be taken in. It's uh, telling him to beware the house of Erendides. What an Erendides knows will destroy me, and my greatest danger will come from the tongueless one. Trying to make him think Ferris. And he says to Ferris, You know the story of the potter and the prophet? The king asked me. Indeed, I did. Um, I will not go breaking all my pots on his say-so. Do you understand? Um, so he's not falling for it, which is great. And um, he, he's, he's sort of dodging a narrative expectation there. Like, you, yeah. you, you think, okay, he's going to be locked into this. Any attempt that he makes to circumvent it is going to inadvertently bring it to pass, mm -hmm. as always happens. And then he 
he he kind of he does the one thing people never do here's a prophecy says that's bull (laughs) um, walks on no (laughs) i will not go breaking all my pots on his say so and i had a uh, a question um this is a perfect opportunity for myth telling do you know the story of the potter and the prophet oh no i've never heard it why don't you tell it to me but we don't get the myth i don't know is it that they don't have time for it anymore or is it that ferris has less interest in it or is it just i mean i think this like this moment is cool because it is like but it makes the world feel like if we were people within the world yeah and we were reading this we would also know that story like they yeah. wouldn't need to tell it to us and it also i love that this reference you know the gist of it is gotten across in just one sentence too you know i think that's really cleverly done like you don't need to tell the whole story to know what the entire moral is and what the point is and how it relates to the real world situation they're in yeah darmok and jalad at tanagra and like this message this message isn't from the gods but the gods allowed it to be brought you can assume Mm, or maybe we can't assume that Mm. one thing that these books do not do is have gods acting in opposition to each other in a way that we can see Hmm. like the medes also have gods but they are not really on the ground here Mm -hmm. and you know that makes me think of something as you say that it's interesting in all the stories that camet tells do we know whose gods he's talking of are they saturn gods are they mead gods you know, I kind of assume he learns all those stories after he becomes a slave. But then he also references a tiny little poem he learned in the temple before he was captured. And I don't remember if those were the same gods that he talks about in the stories. But they might have been. Yeah, and the Mede Empire is so large that who knows, like, what their cultural reach is. Yeah, and maybe they did something similar to Rome in just assimilating everybody's local gods into their own pantheons. Yeah. So that would be why. I'm reminded of, at the end of Queen of Atulia, like when Jen is in the in the room getting blown up by shards of glass or whatever, Atolia goes to a temple and she says, she, like, the narration wanders to herself. Um, maybe the new gods had left with the invaders. She didn't know. Mm. But the temple was empty. So, like, I like the idea of, like, different gods in different places. And, like, it's very clear in all of Jen's mom's stories and his stories that the gods of Edus are tied to the land, the landscape. Like, the Hephaestial Mountains are Hephaestia or whatever. And, like, there are gods of specific streams and rivers. And I feel like this series has a lot of moments where there is no belief. Well, a lot of moments. Yeah, I guess kind of. Where, you know, there is no belief from the people, and then they get smacked over the head with the knowledge that, oh, the gods are real anyway, and here to f*** up your life. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I don't know if that's, like, is that a projection of kind of a modern sensibility? Because I think people did, by and large, believe. Yeah. In Edis, it seems to be standard to genuinely believe, mm-hmm. and it's mentioned that Costas genuinely believes but he's like more comfortable thinking of them like safely on their altars instead of walking into his life or whatever but that most atolians i feel like there's a quote from somewhere 
used their gods for cursing and little else is what it said somewhere. Mm, yeah. Or something. So Edis is more religious than Atolia or Sunis as a country. So it, it seems like the heart of this chapter is emotional again. We get first the blow of Relius's death, and then Seginus is captured. And Ferris has this aha moment about uh, what we read in the opening quote. He needs to remove Seginus as a factor, is what he decides. He commits this act that is on the surface betraying the king in order to, he believes, save the king from himself, I think is how he puts it. Mm-hmm. And this whole section adds another very interesting moral dimension to this whole book. Uh, Ferris narrates when he's looking at how the ring fits into all of his patterns of other uh, treasures. The ring didn't fit. The cufflink was a bruise. My regrets were a road. My thoughts traveled down until they came inevitably to Emptis. Emptis was the reason I feared that I was, as my family called me, a monster. He'd hurt me, and I thought I was justified in hurting him. Perhaps I would have been if I had acted from fear alone. Instead, I'd taken revenge and only afterward asked what my hate had made of me. And then he goes into later, and Seginus, and the similarities with Eugenity. So this is, it's interesting to see this in the context of the larger war they're fighting as well. You know, we're always talking about the personal versus the political. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this is this is another extension of that, in a way. Yeah. And such emphasis placed on intention and considering that moral question. Mm-hmm. Like, if he had acted out of fear or if he had acted out of revenge, it's the same action with the same result. Mm-hmm. Although I suppose he means I considered it beforehand and decided to do it rather than did it in self-defense in the moment, which is like a legal distinction that we make today. Yeah, I don't know. But um, Ferris narrates, I knew it was wrong that the king who had so recently suffered at the Medes' hands would use those tools on another man, which is kind of an even broader statement. But also no one would blame him is another thing that he says. Right. And that's not even like no one would blame him making a moral judgment, but like it's literally within his right. Mm. but Ferris still yeah like he still concludes personally that it is wrong and he says there was a sense of momentum as if the king were somehow hurtling forward like a runaway cart and that everybody would have said like oh of course he can do whatever he wants to set it is because he's the king he's in charge this is right he needs these names also we're whatever. extra super scared of him right now right it comes down to Ferris says they are just terrified of him yeah it's so affecting how Ferris and, and Jen are both really defined by an act of violence from their childhoods and how that's uh how that continues to influence like their their self-image mm-hmm. for each of them but it's a it's something that very few other people know about in either case yeah this scene and this decision of ferris's and his actions that he takes because of it kind of feel to me, like, an answer to the question the book has been asking and the series has been asking all along of when is violence justified? Why is it justified? What makes it so? Mm -hmm. And what is forgivable as well? Yeah. So he helps Seginus escape, not just because it's the right thing for the king, but also because Seginus was the only person who was ever kind to him before he came to the palace. 
and Saginus's kindness is remarked on over and over in this chapter also that uh, Ferris says on their on their walk up the cliff that you know it was so steep that if Ferris fell uh, he would die but Saginus was holding his hand to make sure he didn't fall and Ferris could fall at any time and pull both of them over the cliff mm. the whole way up and Saginus still took that risk and he he mm. talks about this other brother mm-hmm. who was like Ferris as in had the same disability and was also named Ferris mm-hmm. but who his father killed they didn't put in the same effort to kind of keep him out of out of sight and out of mind mm-hmm. as uh they did with Ferris our mm-hmm. Ferris yeah and Melisandre was trying to prove to Erendides that the first Ferris was worth something because he was smart and he could play chess and he should be loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the original Ferris was more threatening. Our Ferris was kept safe by the idea that he was not threatening. Mm-hmm. Although he was still, like, s- still hated, still abused, but left alive. Ferris and Jen. They've both, before we even meet them... They've already committed an act of violence. Yes. And so, like, every subsequent decision that they make about violence is kind of a, like, a, a revisiting of that or a reliving mm-hmm. of that or a reopening of that kind of initial... Yeah, it's informed by what they've already done. Mm-hmm. On a lighter note, I would like to point out that this chapter has both gay people in the foreground and gay people in the background. Woo! Gay people at all points of the three-point perspective of the image. Uh, we've got, although it, it's, it is like a bummer, uh, all around. Talaeus is talking about how Relius is definitely dead. And then Ferris talks about how Zortix's younger son sobbed his heart out when he learned that the lover he betrayed had died. Uh, so, uh... R.I.P. Delagoras. <laughs> Sorry. Another light note. I have written down in my notes for this chapter, Snap lived, oh my god, and came back. Do you ever cry? Yes! Yay, Snap! <laughs> There are multiple references in this chapter to the sewage in the camp and the stinking latrines mm. and how um, the tents were all aglow in the slanting light and there was a breeze to blow the stink away. It looked like a scene from a storybook, but the king's mood was as foul as the sewage in the mud between the brightly colored tents. What a metaphor. Yeah. In this chapter, Ferris narrates, Greece strikes in strange ways. I would never have expected that I would weep someday for Zykos. Or that, losing Relius, I would think of all the words I had written with such care in the journals he'd given me, words that he would never read if he were dead, and that my first tears for him would be tears of rage. And just like with Stenides, uh, Ferris is narrating, you know, Relius was not supposed to be the one who was in danger. It was Tileus who was going to be in danger. Tileus who was going to war. Mm. Relius mocked him for saying, be careful. So this is an extra hard blow. It's interesting that Sejanus says, If the king learns who conspired against him, if he destroys their houses, he will never be able to trust anyone again. He will be another Atolia, starting a new rebellion with each one he puts down, and my father will have his way even from beyond the grave. Yeah. Another Atolia. It reminds me of how Edis was saying that Jan and Atolia have saved each other from themselves. Mm-hmm. I do feel almost kind of defensive. I'm like, let's yeah, get the best hey. she could. <laughs> like, 
again. <laughs> and if all of those oligarchs had just sat back and just accepted central rule again, we wouldn't have had so many people die. <laughs> also, I don't fully know that I agree with Sejanus's argument here. If he knows that 10 out of these 50 people conspired to put the Medes on his throne, but he doesn't know which, is he gonna feel better dealing with all 50 of those people for the next 50 years, or does he want to just get rid of all of them? You know? Yeah. But, you know, he does make the arguments that like oh well some of them were just like weak-willed and like we're only giving money and like didn't know you you what's the guy's name didn't know erendides was gonna like do that so and i guess if he if he destroyed all of their houses then you create like an ongoing vendetta right yeah somebody has to end the cycle of violence and betrayal oh darn oh, shucks <laughs> that's chapter 11 next week the last stand Send us your comments, questions, thoughts. Chime in at atollianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available.